John chapter 20, verse 24 to 31. The sermon title this morning is Disbelief and Belief. Many of us have heard about doubting Thomas. And most translations I read is disbelieving Thomas. It's not actually doubting Thomas. This is kind of a synonym, but we're calling it disbelief and belief. Let me just ask you a question at the very beginning. What does Jesus do in your life? In other words, what difference does Jesus make in your life in compared to those who do not have Jesus in their life? How does the finished work of Christ affect you right now, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday and Saturday to keep going? If we took the lives of 100 Christians and 100 non-Christians and just observed them over a year, what would be the difference between the two groups? If we just did a case study, 100 and 100, 100 professing believers, 100 non-professing believers, and we just observed them for a year. We did nothing else but sit back, eat popcorn, drink our soda or coffee or whatever, and just watch their lives. What practical differences would Jesus make in their lives? Just as a for instance, the Bible tells Christians that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In what way or ways does that truth affect how the way you live your life? In contrast to a non-believer who does not have that declaration over their life. You do. How does it affect you? No condemnation. The Bible tells us that God has declared the end from the beginning. How does that affect the way we view the world and our place in it? The fact that God is in charge, that He is sovereign over all things. How does it affect the way we live our lives? How does it affect the way our head hits the pillow at night? God tells us that He will take care of our needs. Every one of them. What we need. In what way or ways does that truth affect your life? Jesus looks at you and I in the non-believing world and He says, Come to me all who are heavy, weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. But He looks to the believer here this morning and says, My yoke is easy, my burden is light. What does an easy yoke and a light burden look like in everyday life? And even though we know these things are true, the fact that God's sovereign, the fact that there's no condemnation over me, the fact that His, his burden is light, yoke is easy, and His burden is light, the fact that He'll provide for all of our needs, we know these things to be true. All of us would nod our head and say, yes, absolutely, I believe that without question. And yet, at times, like Thomas, we struggle to believe. Or we forget. Instead of having full trust, there is internal wavering. And what I want to do this morning, hopefully, by the grace of God, is I want to grace disbelief away. Grace disbelief away. I want us together to believe God's Word right now, this morning. And I want us to experience two primary things we're going to see in this passage. This morning, and I'm hopeful, hopeful that it will endure, these two things, happiness, number one, Life, number two, happiness in life. And I'm hopeful that will endure, that it becomes our life, our very existence. Look at verse 24 and 25 in John chapter 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, 
and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will not believe it. Disbelieving Thomas. Thomas was away when Jesus showed up. The other disciples tell him, hey, he's alive. And Thomas says, I've got to see it. I've got to put my finger in his side. I've got to touch the marks in his hands. I have to see it with my own eyes. Thomas is a realist. Give me proof. I want evidence. I want to weigh and reason out if it's true. I want to see it with my own eyes. I, I really feel like Thomas a lot of times. Uh, I can disbelieve almost anything. Show me the proof. Where's it at? Give me the actual medical report. I want to see it. Show me proof, data online. I don't want folklore. I don't want an old wives' tale. I want to know online. Give me a medical journal. Give me something and let me see that it's true. Let me see it actual in reality. Show me in the word. So I often feel like where I'm just doubt. Give me the data. Give me the facts. I don't want to just believe something that's a fairy tale. Give me the truth. This is where Thomas is at. I want to see it. Well, then Jesus shows up in verse 26. Eight days later, later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus knew exactly what Thomas had said without being present. Jesus being fully God and fully man is omnipresent. And he's omniscient, not lacking any knowledge of anything that can be known. And notice in this, even though he knows fully that Thomas disbelieved, Jesus shows up. And Thomas' disbelief did not repel Jesus. He knew Thomas didn't believe. The others at this point had accepted these facts of Jesus' resurrection. Thomas had not. And instead of Jesus avoiding Thomas, Jesus drew near. And friends, that's what he did with you. There was a time that you were disbelieving. And your disbelief didn't push Jesus away. He drew near. He came near to you. And that's our hope to this day, is that Jesus comes near to those who are not believing. It's not those who just simply believe, because you cannot believe unless God does something. Amen. Disbelief is the de default position of every human who has ever existed. And yet Jesus comes. And He comes near. He draws near to Thomas, and He says the same thing that He said to the other disciples. Peace be with you. It's like He wants them to know that there's peace coming. It's like he wants them to know that he has to offer them peace. Peace. It's here. It's in front of you. Peace be with you. They were just in turmoil. They were just in doubt. They were just confused as to why Jesus died. He comes back to life. And now this is the third time in this very chapter that he says to them, peace. Thomas, peace. I want you to know it. Jesus is so compassionate with Thomas, knowing exactly what Thomas needed. He says, hey, Thomas, here's my side. Check it out. Give me your hands. Put it here. You can feel. Look at my hands. It's really me, Thomas. He's so compassionate. And he's compassionate with you. Touch. See. I am alive. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Well, Thomas speaks back. It's a conversation, and we are more than a fly on the wall. We know exactly how, how it's going down. We see in verse 28 that Thomas responds. Thomas answered, My Lord... 
and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas responds. He says, My Lord, so Jesus, and my God. And this is an amazing declaration by Thomas. He says, my Lord and my God, my Lord Jesus and the very God of the universe, my God or Yahweh. Jesus recognizes, excuse me, Thomas recognizes that Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God. Now, what's happening right now is a marvelous setup for the two purposed verses in the book. If you remember when we started the book of John, we started in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. We're going to be there in just a second. And we're going to go through it again. We're going to look at the very last part in more detail than we did the first time. But the whole point, point, bo- whole point of the book of the Gospel of John is that two things. That you would believe Jesus is the Christ, so the Messiah, the Son of God, the Messiah and God himself, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, believe he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Believe he is God in the flesh. And that by believing, you have life in his name. And here is Thomas declaring what the whole point of the book is about. You are Jesus, the Messiah, my Lord, and you are my God. Now, there's no room for ambiguity here. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is fully God. He was really Jesus, and he is really fully God. Nobody in here can understand that completely. It is impossible. It's impossible to grasp all of that, but it is true. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now, which is it? Is he fully God or is he fully man? Because that's how in our mind we want it to work. He's either one or the other. And when you do that, when you go and try to rationalize this and figure it out in your mind, rather than just embracing what the Bible teaches here about who Jesus is, you end up becoming a cult. You end up denying either the deity of Christ or you deny the humanity of Jesus. And down through the history of the church, there have been people who have denied both. But here Thomas rightly says, you're Jesus, you're my Lord, and you are my God. This is the only Jesus we have, and this is the Jesus that we confess. Now, Jesus responds back, and he says something fascinating, I think, to Thomas. And we have now we're going to repeat this for a second time. We did this earlier in the Gospel of John. But Jesus is going to speak to Thomas, and he's, going to, he's not going to correct what Thomas said, that you're my Lord and my God, but he is going to bring a little bit of clarity about you and me right now. Here's what Jesus says. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus doesn't correct Thomas's statement about who he is. Now, I'll just say this again. This is going to be the last time that I say this in the, in the Gospel of John. Jesus is who he says he is. Or he's an egomaniac. Because he just let a man call him God. And if you're not who you say you are, if you're not God, okay, and you let somebody else call you God without correcting that person, you're, again, it's crazy. But Jesus is who he says he is. He is God in the flesh. Thomas saw... But those who will believe after Thomas, believe after the apostles, are privy to a unique blessing. 
We will be blessed in a way that Thomas and the apostles are not blessed. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. Now it's interesting, this word blessed. In both the Hebrew and Greek, the word blessed is a synonym of happy. It can be translated happy as well. When we think blessing in our society today, or even in Christian circles, we typically think of material blessing. We think about God giving things. And God does bless us materially. If you're in here today and you've had food in your belly this morning, if you have clothes on your back, those are, we shouldn't just think that all of these things come to us naturally. These are blessings from the Lord. His common grace to us and even to a non-believing world. God is so gracious. But this word blessing is more than just blessed will you be for those who believe without seeing. It has more weight to it than just this idea of anything material. Happy. We could say happy are those who will be believing without seeing. This is a state of being. It's a state of presence. It's a state of existence. Happy are those who are going to believe in me without seeing. It's not just a place of blessing externally. It's some sort of life existence. Happy. And happy for us is going to be a way that we can frame up what Jesus is talking about. Remember in Psalm chapter 1, if you'll open up in your King James Bible, in Psalm chapter 1, blessed are those whose delight is in the law of, of the Lord. If you'll open it up just like in Hebrew and the same thing in Greek here. Happy are those whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Happy. Blessed. Happy are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus is speaking to a state of existence of future believers. Now, when we talk about happiness or joy or blessing, ironically, it can become an easy way to bring condemnation. And I want to talk carefully because Jesus in no way is bringing condemnation, but it is going to drive us to Jesus when we consider these things. I want us to consider the question, is everyone who has ever believed in Jesus after his ascension, is every Christian, so now we look at 100 Christians or 100 non-Christians, are they all happy? We in this room, if we combine everybody in the room and then downstairs, we're not... 85, 90-something-ish people in this room or in downstairs, everybody combined. And, we, and the Christians, because most of our kids aren't converted yet, we've got probably a case study of 60, 65, 70 Christians in this building. Is every one of you happy? Okay, you see how condemnation can easily creep in here? Because that's not where we're going. We're not, we're not going, well, sorry, you're not a Christian if you're not happy. But we have to wrestle with what Jesus is talking about because Jesus is saying, if you're, if you're a Christian, after the ascension, you have unique blessing. And again, not external material, which is what we think blessing. This is an internal state of existence. So, and it's a synonym of happy. So we're talking about a happy existence. And I want to give you five reasons for happiness this morning. And hold out to the end, because I want you to look at this and kind of put it as a blanket over your life. And I want you to be driven to Jesus at the end, but I want you to consider some things that could make us happy. But before doing that, I want to read to you, and I want us to consider, just for a moment, a current cultural dilemma that we face. Jesus says three times in this passage and in this chapter, peace be upon you. Peace be upon you. The first reason for happiness 
First reason out of the five reasons for happiness here this morning I want to give you comes directly from this passage. Peace be with you. You have, believer, who have believed in Jesus after the ascension, you have peace with God. Actual right now. You have an answer for the gnawing guilt that rests upon humanity. You have the answer within you. Peace be with you. Three times. First reason for happiness, you have peace with God. But I want you to consider this cultural dilemma that we face right now. Now, this is interesting. This, this comes from a New York Times article in March of 2017. And the article's title is The Strange Persistence of Guilt. Think through this. This is quite, I think, semi, we could call prophetic. We're living in an age of great moral pressure. Even if we lack the words to articulate it. In fact, as Wilford McClay points out in a brilliant essay called The Great and Strange Persistence of Guilt, religion may be in retreat, but guilt seems as powerfully present as ever. Now think about the cultural dilemma of guilt in this world. Non-Christian world just out there and then even the guilt that some believers feel. Technology gives us power, and power entails responsibility. And responsibility, McClay says, leads to guilt. Works like this. You and I see a picture of a starving child in Sudan, and we know inwardly that we're not doing enough. That's why nobody likes World Vision commercials. It messes with us. Whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There's an endless list of items which I could feel guilty about. McClay is describing a world in which we, we are still driven by an indistinguishable need to feel morally justified. I want you to hear this. This is New York Times. Speaking of the cultural dilemma, and in, we, we inextinguishably need to feel morally justified. Our thinking is still vestigy shaped, vestibly shaped, or whatever that word is, by religious categories. And yet we have no clear framework or set of religious ideals to guide us to our quest to, toward goodness. Worse, people still have a guilt sense of guilt and sin, but no longer sense that they're living in a universe marked by divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness. There's sin, but no formula for redemption. Modern cultural problem. Sin, but no formula for redemption. The only reliable way to feel morally justified in a culture, in this culture, is to assume the role of victim. As McGlay puts it, claiming victim status is the sole, sure means left of absolving oneself and securing one's sense of fundamental moral innocence. Hang with me. If one wishes to be accounted innocent, these words, it, it is amazing. If one wishes to be accounted innocent, one must find a way to make the claim that one cannot be held morally responsible. This is precisely what the status of victimhood accomplishes. Final point. I'll add that this move takes all moral striving and it politicizes it. Instead of seeing it as a moral struggle between you and God... Or something that happens between good and evil within yourself, moral struggle now happens primarily publicly between groups. Now you look, turn on the TV, and you tell me that there aren't people telling, trying to get rid of their guilt by taking the moral high road, or at least they think they are. 
there is this gnawing sense of guilt. And we have no place to take it in our world today. Answers are insufficient and small for the need at hand. And yet people long to be declared innocent, long to be counted guilty. This is New York Times, not a bastion of conservative thought or a bastion of conservative thought in any way, theologically, politically, anyway, and yet speaking truth of the human condition. But God has spoken, brothers, sisters. The world feels guilty because they are guilty. That's why they feel guilty. And you and I were guilty as well. And God gives an answer to guilty humanity. And we've been talking about it week after week and will be talking about it week after week. The cross of Christ is where redemption is found. We don't have to long, long and wonder ambiguously through a weird cesspool of modern thinking of your truth's my truth and this truth is your truth and find your truth and do your thing. Redemption is not to be found in here. Redemption is found from the hill called Calvary. The cross of Christ is where redemption is found. Forgiveness of sins is possible. Peace with God is yours. So the number one reason we have for happiness is that you have peace with God. You have an answer for the guilt within. Number two, unconditional love has searched us out. We live in a world that confuses unconditional affirmation with unconditional love. If you were to love somebody unconditionally in this world that we currently live in, it is to affirm everything about them. Don't call any decision into question. Affirm everything. And Jesus doesn't do that. Unconditional love has searched us out. And it's not unconditional affirmation. Jesus came to show us that even though our lives deserved and did not deserve, excuse me, affirmation, it deserved damnation, God loved us anyways. He didn't absolve our guilt and say, oh, no big deal. He punished our sins. He didn't say, you're not wrong. He addressed the guilt that you and I feel and did something about it so that we don't have to feel it anymore. Without condition, brother, sister, you have been chosen by God. You are loved by God and there is nothing you can do about it. Even if that offends your sensibilities, he's got you in his hand. He's not leaving you and you are gloriously stuck with him the rest of your life. Welcome to grace. Three, God is your sovereign father. Third reason for happiness. Romans 8, 28 just hovers over all the hurting brothers and sisters across the world. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who love, for those who are called according to his purpose. Your pain is not purposeless and neither is your good. He can even work the good in your life for your good, a greater good. Anything that comes your way, all things, He works toward your good because He's sovereign over all things and He is not powerless in your pain. It wasn't arbitrary. What a horrifying thought to think that your pain was purposeless. Four, the fourth reason for happiness. We have promises that God will take care of us. Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Let me ask you, are you not more valuable than a bird? We can answer the question together. Yes. We are more valuable than the birds. 
You see every bird out there, just consider how many birds there are. We have a four acre lot here that we sit on this building and consider all the trees that are around it. If we just counted the birds, we just we couldn't even count. Literally hundreds of birds. You know who feeds those hundreds of birds? God. Every one of them. God has the ability to pay attention to detail. Every bird. God's feeding. And he will take care of you. He will take care of you. You're going to make it. You hear me? If Jesus is here present, and this is his words right here, just looking at you physically and said, hey, it's okay. You see those birds? I feed them. And you're so much more valuable than them. I have you. I love you. It's going to be okay. What would that do for your soul? Fifth reason for happiness. There is unconditional grace and no condemnation for the unhappy Christian. There is unconditional grace and no condemnation for the unhappy Christian. Happiness is not a prerequisite for God's grace in your life. God's love and grace for you is not dependent upon your enjoyment of it. You hear me? God's grace and love for you is not dependent upon your enjoyment of it. Christ is for you even when you don't feel like it. And the the depressed Christian needs to know even now that the gospel is true and there is no condemnation for you. God's love is upon you. And by that truth, maybe, just maybe, you're led out of your sadness today. Maybe. What better news can there be for the hurting Christian to say that God loves you anyways? He loves you anyways. He's not mad at you. And so John sets this up perfectly for the next two verses. Blessed or happy are those that believe. And this is why I've written the book, that people would believe. The last word of verse 29 is, and yet have believed. And he sets it up and he goes right to chapter or verse 30 and 31. And let's look at it together. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are written in the book, in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, remember, signs are not the point. Signs point to the point. The point of this book is not the signs. The point of this book is the sign, where the signs point. So the first Big thing that we just looked at was happiness. And the second thing we're going to look at is life. And these signs point to reality about Jesus. They authenticate the one who's doing the signs. And these particular signs are written for a reason. But what are these signs? Let's just go through them quickly again. John chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine and gave the credit to the bridegroom. John chapter 4, the healing of the official son at Capernaum. John chapter 5, the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethsaida. John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 6, Jesus walks on water. John chapter 9, Jesus heals the man born blind. John chapter 11, Jesus heals Lazarus. And then John chapter 20, greatest sign, Jesus is alive. He is 
alive. The big one. He is, in fact, alive. These signs, John the curator of signs, the one who specifically picks these signs to accomplish a point, put them together and gives them to us and said, consider these signs. They're about Jesus. I'm given to you these things for two reasons. And these two reasons are to state again that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's intent is to put these and just have us consider them and believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's what Thomas just declared. Jesus is his Lord and his God. We're at the end of the book, and I hope for you guys and for myself that we truly believe, even in greater ways, that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, God in the flesh. In greater ways than we did even before we started this book. Jesus is the Son of God. He is who He says He is. He is not a madman. He is not an egomaniac. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is who he says he is, and that changes everything. But in verse 31, there's another reason, and I want us to focus in on this. So happiness, and then the second thing is life. Verse 31b, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. By believing. By believing, you may have life in his name. Certainly this life includes eternal life. You've probably heard this before, and it is true. In Greek, there are three words for life. Bios, shuke, shuke. Bios is where we get biology. Shuke, it's hard to say, is where we get psychology. And then this last word for life in the Bible is zoe. And it is uncreated life. So bios is physical life. Shuke is life of the soul or the inner life. Zoe is is uncreated, eternal life of God. It's the life that we now, as believers, are living. It's a state of life that we are living in. And Jesus comes and he says that, this is what I offer. This is what I am. This is what I offer. John writes it all and says, I want you to believe who Jesus is, who he says he is, and I want you to have life in his name by believing. And Zoe life is the life that Christians start to experience now. Eternal life begins not just when Christ returns, but eternal life begins for the believer when you move from spiritual death to spiritual life. You are living eternal life right now. That's why two weeks ago we talked about, we just wish that death was something else for the believer if it was something like gain. And death is gain for the believer. Death is not death the same way it is for a non-believer. Death for us is gain. And so we are living eternal life right now. Now, I want you to think about this life and then think about your life. Zoe life, this life in his name, is a state of existence from the inside out. Resurrection life. It's a state of existence that non-believers never get to experience, but every believer has. You have it in you right now. In Zoe life, it is not superficial. It's bulletproof. It's not about external material examples of the good life. It is not living a life that's endless vacation life. This life is an inside-out existence. Life in Jesus does not mean, in other words, an easy life. Come to Jesus and your life will be easy. 
is not in any way the message of the gospel. In fact, come to Jesus and your life will be harder. You'll be thrown into spiritual battle and warfare against the enemy. And you'll come and you'll see things you've never seen before. And your flesh will now be at battle with your spirit. If you don't want that, don't come to Jesus. It's not an easy life, but in fact, it is Zoe life. Not easy. Oh, 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 no. It is too, too good for that. Because Zoe life is for the Christian who is in prison as much as it is for the Christian on vacation. True life in Christ is there for Christians on their deathbed. It's there for John right now. And I'm sure you're experiencing, even with John knowing he is, there's probably a joy still in him, even though he may feel beat up. There's something in the life of the believer, no matter what the circumstance, that's different. Life in Jesus is there for Christians on their deathbed as much as it is for the day their child was born. Life in Christ is about an inside-out life and peace that is present no matter what happens externally. It is a bulletproof life even if the bullets come. Jesus is the prime example of Zoe life. He died at 33, but he lived the perfect life to the full extent that life can be lived. Friends, what if there was a life that you had an experience, you and I had an experience that was irregardless of external circumstances? Because this, as we begin to engage with the truth of Jesus, again, afresh and anew and considerate, we've come to grips with Jesus is who He says He is. And now we, we get the opportunity to experience the truth that's proclaimed over our life and have real joy and real peace and real happiness. May it be. And brothers and sisters, I want to charge you with a few things here. I want you to consider a few things. If these things are true, life, happiness and life in Jesus' name, if these things are true, that because there's no condemnation over you, you have a place to bring your guilt and don't have to feel guilty anymore, then right now, you are blessed and you're happy. Right now, you have life in His name. Right now. It's not out there for somewhere for you to discover. Right now, you have the Holy Spirit within you. You have life within you. Right now, you have Jesus. Right now, this moment, there's no condemnation for you, even if you're unhappy and don't feel like you're experiencing this life. There's no condemnation for you. I don't know what drives out doubt more than the fact that God's grace is there for you no matter what. You see, when we talk about the experience of a Christian, it becomes so difficult. Because we start to think, well, the Christian is always, okay, the Christian is supposed to be happy. True. I'm not happy. I must not be a Christian. No. Because God's grace for you is unconditional, believer. It's not conditional upon you experiencing it or treasuring it. Life for you is there right now. You have the very Spirit of God within you right now, whether you feel like you do or not. And that truth, you don't have to be guilty, no condemnation, even for those who are struggling to believe that I have no condemnation. Like I said, you have no condemnation over you anyways. What news could be better than that? It's like you and I should live a life to the glory of God and seek to enjoy Him forever or something. It's like we exist for the glory of God right now, to sing to Him and praise Him from the inside out, even if we don't feel like it. 
It's like He's worthy of all praise and glory and honor for loving us even when we don't feel loving towards Him. It's like He's worth it or something. There's life in His name. For the non-believer, keep this in your tool belt for evangelism. What do you do with your guilt? Where do you take your guilt? If you take your guilt to yourself, it will stay in yourself. You'll never get rid of it. You'll never have a place to put it. What do you do with your guilt? Will you embrace a life of victimhood to medicate your conscience? Last week I spoke of victimhood, and that is a reality. We are all culprits of sin, but we have all been victimized as well. But we are not all victims. We don't have to embrace that identity for a lifetime. Or this morning, if you're a non-believer, will you look to Christ and find your place to take your guilt and have Jesus take it away and never have it again? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was in the place of sinners for the glory of God. And your invitation this morning as we sing again is to sing to the glory of God. And for anybody who feels internally any sort of condemnation, God says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your grace. I pray that You would unleash joy. I thank You that happiness is a part of this thing. There's going to be times. Well, God, I just ask that You'd bring happiness right now. Bring joy. The blessed life. Right now. Thank You that You are the living Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are who You say You are. It's been a great joy to consider Your mercy and Your grace that's just on every page of the Gospel of John. Help us to sing to You, and I pray, God, that You would unleash those two things this morning, happiness and life. We'd experience it as we sing. It's Your name we pray. Amen. If anybody needs to pray about anything, you can come and pray with me. I'll be right up here.